We do record these. Knowing that it's being recorded helps me not say things that I shouldn't say in public. (laughs) All right, so we're in the context of the Passover and Luke 22. So as Jesus has sent his disciples up to the, they've found this, this upper room. He's asked the disciples to prepare the Passover there, and he's about to go and have the Passover. So very significant context here. Um, the, 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 pa- the picture of the Passover in the Old Testament is like the, the Exodus and the Passover together are the quintessential or the, the main redemptive events for the Old Testament people of Israel. They cling to that just as heartily as we cling to the cross. And then now that Israel has the cross, they ultimately the cross fulfilled the Passover. But as we're leading up to the cross event itself, um, celebrating the Passover. So, so think way back to when, when Moses comes and leads, is trying to lead Israel out of bondage in the promised land. It is the Passover event that is the nail in the coffin to, to finally let Pharaoh let my people go, right? So uh, it was the, the, they kill the lamb and they, they put the blood on the doorpost. Now, all of the nuances about the Passover are most are, are lost like what 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 they did at the actual passover that that practice of what what exactly they do when some of that's a lot of that's been lost and a lot of what was done even at the at the time of jesus which is hundreds of years later that's also lost so what we have today if you've ever like in the 80s this was more popularized because there was like a there was a like I think Jews for Jesus or something, there was a, a way that Christian churches were practicing the Passover Seder, usually on like Maundy Thursday. That was like a popular thing to do. Um, it was kind of fun. You kind of walk, there's all these like symbolisms that are clearly pointing to the cross. Um, none of that is actually historically accurate, or at least we can't say with any certainty that this is anything close to what Jesus actually did on, on, on Maundy Thursday. Hopefully I didn't just pop your balloon. But that's the problem is a lot of it, Sewer, you remember the Bible and all these, like all of Israel's practices, it was all lost for years. Mary, you're reading 2 Kings. and I, Who's a good king that finds the, finds the Bible? It's like hidden in the, it's, it's a good king, Josiah. So they're like cleaning off the old trophies in the, in the old like abandoned closet. And they're told, oh, this is a trophy. We run softball and back in 82. Oh, and then what's this book? Oh, a Bible. That we've, we're supposed to be doing all these things. And we haven't done any of them. Like, can you imagine? So they find the Bible and they implement that. But a lot of the things that, a lot of those traditions weren't being passed on. What was Israel doing? A lot of that was clouded and lost. And then especially then after the destruction of Israel, like it's completely lost. So we don't know. But what's, what we do know, all that we know for sure about the Passover is what the Bible said that they were doing. They, and that, that doesn't give the specifics. Like in today, there's a couple of cups that go around, but it doesn't talk about when they eat the bitter herbs and what that means and all these kind of things. That's all, some of that is in, is in the Old Testament, pre- prescribing it. Um, the most important thing, though, is, is as, a, as an Israelite, you're taking this, this lamb without blemish. So the perfect, the best from the flock. And it's fluffy. So you, and I think as a parent, you probably... It sounds like I'm going to be mean when I say this, but it's probably in your best interest to raise your kids to love Fluffy. It's the one lamb that gets to eat first. 
and you let him, whatever you do with sheep, I don't know, what all the good, what all, the, all the ways you can pamper this sheep. And then you've got the Passover that comes, and then the family all gets together, and then together we slit his throat. What? Think about this, the, the picture there is that my sin actually has a cost. That's the sacrificial system. It's not just something's got to die to appease the law. I'll pay off somebody over here. You guys go worry about it over there. It's so that this is actually why Jesus flips over the part of why Jesus flips over the tables in the temple. The whole thing had become this business that's disconnected from the pain that my sin actually causes and the cost of my sin. So when you're actually having to take one of your, if you've only got like five cows and you've done some egregious sin and you have to take one of your cows down to have it sacrificed, that actually is a remi- an ongoing reminder of, to you of how, how serious your sin is. And when you have to kill little Fluffy, that's again this picture of the innocent being slaughtered because of something that I've done. And then obviously they put the blood on the door and the angel of death passes over and the people are led out of bondage in Israel into the promised land. So that was always meant to be a picture of what Jesus is going to do. Well, they didn't know it at the time. They're just seeing it in the immediate context of getting out of bondage and slavery. But then uh, when John the Baptist points at Jesus and says, behold the Lamb of God, that doesn't make any sense without the context of the Passover. I mean, think about that. Has anyone ever called you a lamb before? Unless you have like white fluffy hair, there's no other reason to be called a lamb unless you're going to be sacrificed. So this is this wonderful picture of Jesus in some way is going to be fulfilling the Passover and, and he knows it and the people kind of know it, but they don't know exactly how or what's going to be going on here. Um, and maybe, I, never, I guess I never thought about this before, when, when the Passover happened, what happened to the Egyptians? Were they made high or brought low? They were brought low and then ticked off and they think they changed their mind, let's go kill the Israelites and then what happens to them? Second wave of killings. Let's just follow them into the Red Sea and then they all die, right? So if I'm, an Israel, if I'm following Jesus and, and I'm thinking this is it, he's gonna fulfill the Passover, Maybe I'm missing that he's going to die for my sins in the way that sheep die. Maybe I'm thinking he's going to destroy the powers that be like last time. See? This is, maybe it's a thought. And, and it, gets at, it gets at why all the disciples, they're all, miss, they're all missing it. They keep missing it. Why they're pulling out swords of the Garden of Gethsemane. They keep missing it. You and I, we know the end of the story. They didn't have that advantage. So uh, the, the context of the Passover is key. He's about to fulfill it. And when, verse 14, so chapter 22, verse 14, and when the hour came, he reclined at table and the apostles with him. So the hour, if, if you follow Luke 22, it's moved from like this, the time of the, the, the season of the Passover, the, um, the holiday of the Passover, the greater festival event. Then the day drew near and now it's the hour. So it's kind of like building toward this point. The apostles with him and he said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. So sundown has happened. They're starting the Passover. And since it's, it's the sun has set on Thursday, so now it's technically what? Friday, if I'm Jewish. And what happens, as we know, on Friday? His death. This is the day. 
So Jesus knows what's coming. He even knows when it's going to be happening. And so when he's sitting down, all this is in his mind. I'm just going to read through, read through it once, and then we'll come back and chew it up. I tell you, I will not eat it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And he took a cup. When he had given thanks, he said, take this and divide it among yourselves. For I tell you that from now on, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, this is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise, the cup after they had eaten, saying, this cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. But behold, the hand of him who betrays me is with me on the table. For the Son of Man goes as it has been determined. But woe to that man by whom he is betrayed. And they began to question one another, which of them it could be who was going to do this. And that's our, that's our Lord's Supper here. So we talked about the hour in verse 14. He says to them, I have earnestly desired. So he's got this, he has this desire. So we know what's coming. It's not that he wanted to just have a desire to have the Passover with them. But we, what is he about to institute? But the main, the main sacrament of the entire Christian church for the next who knows how many millennia. So what he's wanting to hand over to the disciples is this way of knowing that he is with them, that he's, that he's forgiving their sins, that he loves them, that he wants to be with them. And in fact, he's going to continue to be with them, not in the way that they might want, but in the way that Jesus wants. So he's, he's, he's like, he's, he's comforting them in advance. I earnestly desire, greatly desire to eat this Passover. So this is the Greek. We pronounce this Pascha. And that's the word, that's the word for Passover. It's also the same word for, so it means Passover. And it means, where is it? I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I, Pascha. It's the same word, back to back. So Jesus, there's like a play on words here that we don't, we don't catch it in the English. And just a little liturgical note here, the, there's, uh, does the word Pascha bring to your mind anything in the church? Furniture-wise, I'll narrow it down. What's that? The Paschal candle, the big candle by the font that we sometimes light, and maybe you're you're like, no idea why we sometimes light that. Well, the the, the best reason that we do it is to have a looming fear among the short acolytes that one day they're going to have to light it or put it out, and it keeps them humble. But there's also there's a better reason. So the, the Paschal candle, if you've ever come to the Easter vigil service, so the Saturday, Saturday night, it begins, at, it begins at sunset. So we're, at, we're technically already in Easter at that point. We, press, we, we have the new candle. We mark it with the new year. There's like this little liturgy where we kind of like, um, we, we dedicate this candle for the next year. Uh, it's traced with, a, it's, it's like st we stick nails in it where the marks of Jesus are. It's a beautiful candle. If you ever want to get up close, you can see it. We march in, behold, the, Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Or No, G Jesus, the light of the world. I forget, I forget the, the liturgy. 
We get in, there's like back and forth chant with the congregation and the pastor. We get in and we put it into its place. And that's the night that we install the new candle. The significance though, is that this can't, we're trying to highlight the candle because what's gonna happen is we're gonna go on to light that candle every time there's a baptism because it connects the significance of baptism to the significance of Easter. So my baptism is most important, not because I forgot to wash my hair that day and I wanted to get a second washing. It's because baptism is, as Romans 6 says, I'm being baptized into the death and resurrection of Jesus. So baptism isn't a reminder of this, it's doing it. The candle is the reminder of that. But there's another wonderful time we light that candle and that is when you die. So we get this perfect triangle that connects the joy that we have at a funeral, the hope that we have at a funeral is tied to our baptism because our baptism is tied to Easter. I've already died. When, I, when they wheel me in in the casket, I've already died the only death that matters. I died in my baptism and now I'm, I'm living in my new Christian life with Christ. So the candle is just a, it's a, it's a, it's an earth symbol, whatever, it's man-made. Jesus didn't say to do it, but that's why we do it, is to, it's to help us connect the dots between all these things. We also light it whenever there's a feast day, a festival, a big, a big occasion, a big event, especially when we remember one of the saints who died. We flip the colors to red, remember they're dead, but they're not dead because they've been baptized into Christ. That's why we call them saints. So I think the next time we light the candle, I think we light our Reformation, we'll also light on All Saints Day. But so that's why it's called a Pascha candle and uh, the, same, the same context of suffering. So I've been, I've been anxious, desiring to eat this Passover with you before I Pascha, before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. What is it? I will not eat it until it is fulfilled. What is fulfilled? What's Jesus fulfilling? The Passover. So I'm not going to be eating this again until the Passover is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. Well, what's the kingdom of God? So we're... Yeah, so, the, so Ina said the kingdom is among us and within us, and, I, and yes, so I'm going to get at the why behind that. Whenever I think about it, this military imagery, and you can actually, you, knowing, having chess in your background, the, the, the main goal of chess is to not lose which piece? The king. But when you're trying to advance your like, borders, what you're not going to do is, all right, the, all the bad guys are just beyond the border there. Uh, if we want to take some land, what we'll do is we'll send our king out first. Why is that a bad idea? They're gonna nail him right away and then we lose. But so when we're moving the king, we're only gonna move him when the territory is expanding. So, we're, so hold, as the territory expands, the king comes in behind. So the kingdom is wherever the king is. Wherever Jesus is, the kingdom is. Uh, and interestingly enough, when is he crowned king? What kind of crown does he wear? Not gold and jewels, but thorns. So when Jesus is lifted up on the cross, we see a dying man, but we actually see the king on his, on his throne doing what the king wants to do to save his people. 
Uh, so we talk about the Passover being fulfilled in the kingdom of God. The commentaries, not necessarily satisfying, but it's a helpful way to think about it because he does eat and drink after the resurrection. So the crucifixion and resurrection fulfill the Passover. So it is fulfilled and the kingdom of God comes at the resurrection of Jesus. But also when we talk about the coming of the kingdom of God, there's also a lot of that end times imagery the return of Christ on the last day, us entering into eternal life. That's kind of what we think too. So kingdom of heaven, wherever Jesus is on the throne, the kingdom of heaven now in his church on earth, but also the kingdom of heaven that is still yet to come. So we get this progressive fulfillment of the Passover. That, so Jesus, he eats it again after his death and resurrection. He continues to eat it with us in this new way. So he is with us in his in this supper that he's instituting right now. So he abides with his church, eating and drinking with us. And then ultimately it is fulfilled, like in Revelation 19, the marriage feast of the lamb and his kingdom that has no end. Uh, so the picture of heaven as a marriage feast is, is great. And, I, and I, almost, I almost mentioned it in the sermon, but then I thought I'm gonna make some people mad, but I can do it now. And uh, you can get mad if you want, I don't care. So I grew up in, I grew up in, uh, well, let me back up. When you think marriage feast, what do you think? Like what is, why does God hold up marriage feast as the cool example? Why doesn't he say in the Super Bowl victory of the lamb and his kingdom, which has no end? Like what, why does he pick wedding marriage feast? Now, obviously there's this, the, the perfect picture of marriage between Christ and his bride, the church. And what that means, so marriage is not a symbol, but it's a picture, it's a picture of what Christ is doing for his church. That's all helpful, but there's also a very real way that Jesus loves weddings. He loves the celebration. There's a, there's a joy there. So you're thinking like uh, best wines. This is Isaiah 25. Wine, awesome food. You, you spare no expense to, to the father of the bride's disappointment, dismay. <laughs> um, but here's the thing. I, I grew up in Mississippi in Baptistville, and... Um, my, whenever I heard this, I was always thinking, I don't know if I want to go to heaven. Because <laughs> marriage feasts are not, they're the opposite of fun. So I remember Janice is a good friend of mine from high school. She got married like freshman year of college or something. We go to this wedding. And it was like in 11 o'clock in the morning. And then everybody goes over to the fellowship hall. It's kind of like, there was like a table like that set out. And the lights were all on. And there was like no music. And there was a punch bowl full of, Kool-Aid, not the kind that kills you, but like legit Kool-Aid and, and the, like lemon cookies. And everybody's just kind of standing around awkwardly thinking about what? When can I get out of here? So that's my picture of a wedding. I was like, I don't know if that's the heaven I, I had in mind. But you think, so the idea of heaven, the reason why this is, this is helpful to remember is the joy of a, of a wedding in its like proper sense. And obviously there's, there's tons of exceptions and the limitations of what we have in this world. But the fact is, it is a joyful occasion. And what makes it joyful is not just, it's not just the wine and the food. That's actually there because of the joy. So the joy is because of the marriage. But we have all, we're, we're, we're sparing no expense celebrating this thing. But notice who you're celebrating with. Aunt Susie drove all the way from Oregon to be. Can you believe that? Oh, and, and these cousins, they flew in from Ireland? Like we haven't seen them in forever. So this reunion, 
Now, in our, on this side of heaven, that also brings with it a certain level of stress, expectations, in-laws, all this weird stuff, you know. But in, in this heavenly picture, it is this joy of family reunion. These, the, the saints gone by that I've missed, some I haven't even known yet. I get to meet my nephew that I didn't get to meet. And there's this rejoicing. What a beautiful picture of heaven. Uh, so that's when it's fulfilled in the third fulfillment. Then Jesus take, he, so verse 17, he took a cup. Now, th there's, there's actually four cups that get passed around during the Passover meal. Four. There's only two that are referenced here. So this, isn't, this first cup isn't the chalice of the, of the institution of the Lord's Supper. This is part of the Passover. He took a cup. When he had given thanks, he said, take this and divide it among yourselves. So it's just, that's part of the Passover meal. Uh, for I tell you that from now on, I will not drink, and this is like a continuation from verse 16, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. Fruit of the vine, so again, to reference my Baptist roots, is always like, well, Jesus, Jesus didn't use wine. Well, then why is everybody getting drunk in 1 Corinthians? So it's like, there's, there's no way around it. So fruit of the vine, there's actually, there's not a way, I think the word is like pasteurization or something like, if you, if you put grape juice in a vat, it's going to ferment. You can't stop it unless you like boil it and do this purification process to it. So it necessarily, any kind of grape juice is always toward being wine. And when it's toward being wine for a long time and aged properly and tastes really, really good, that's the stuff that Jesus breaks out for the wedding at Cana. He saved the good stuff to the end. So when, he, so when you see the fruit of the vine, it's, he's not talking Welch's. He's, he's not talking Fairbanks port either. That's what we use. Uh, it's just up above Welch's. Until the kingdom of God comes. So again, the kingdom of God comes progressively, first at the resurrection, and then also at the end of time, the marriage feast, the lamb and his kingdom. So we get Jesus continuing to rejoice with us in his supper now, but then also in the heavenly, the heavenly throne room. Now we get into the Lord's Supper. So it's kind of like, we close, he, he, he transitions now from the Passover meal to the, the, the thing he's been earnestly desiring to do, and that's fulfill the Passover with this new meal. He took the bread, and when he had Eucharisteo, so that's the word that we get for some, one of the words of the Lord's Supper is the, the Eucharist. So if you, ever, if you ever hear someone refer to the Lord's Supper as the Eucharist, and you think, well, they must not be Lutheran because they call it the Eucharist. Like, no, they just, they're being annoying. I don't know. It's, no. <laughs> but you can call it the Eucharist, but this is where it gets the, the word. We like, we often call it the Lord's Supper, which isn't even the necessarily, at least in the institution. It's, Paul refers to it as, as the Lord's Supper later on in, in his epistles. But, but here, to call it the Eucharist is fine because it's referring to Jesus it's one, it grabs one of the words from the institution. He gave thanks. He broke it and gave it to them saying, this is my body, this is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. That's probably as far as we're gonna to get today. <laughs> so here's, here's the thing. So first I had a question brought to me last week. He took the bread and he broke it. Some when it comes to the practice of the Lord's Supper today, are we supposed to break it? 
It, does it not count if we don't break it? Are you supposed to break it? Who's supposed to break it? Why the breaking, right? Well, uh, the breaking in the Lord's, I mean, just to oversimplify it, the main things are the words that are spoken. We're going to come back to this. Jesus breaks the bread because, have you ever played that game where, like, you have, like, an apple and, you, and you're holding it and you're supposed to pass it to the person next? These games became much less popular after COVID. <laughs> so, like, or, like, the spaghetti scene from, like, Lady and the Tramp. Unless you want to have the Lord's Supper like that, you're going to break it naturally into pieces and pass it around. It's just practical. So that's just what Jesus does. He's taking the loaf and he breaks it up. Now that, he, he makes all kinds of connections there. So we are one body. We are one loaf, though, though it's, it's in multiple pieces. We are still one body in him. So whether, there's, there's no necessity to break the Lord's Supper. Jesus doesn't say to do this. That's just what he did. He took the cup and he broke it. He bro- or took the bread and he, he broke it. But breaking it doesn't, it's not part of the, it's not like a law. Like you have to do that sort of thing. It's as soon as we try to make it into a law, we kill it. Um, so some, some people like to break it just out of habit. That's fine. We actually don't break it during the institution. We break it because we have one like big wafer that's like this big. And we have, you know why we have a big wafer? Because people in the back can't see it otherwise if we hold up that little quarter size thing. So we hold up the big one. He took the bread, we consecrate it, we, then we, we end up breaking it when we distribute it because, again, it's too big to eat. Although next week, I might try it in the 11 o'clock service to just hand that to Barton straight up. <laughs> we'll see. Just keep watching the 11 o'clock service and we'll see what I decide to do. Um, but so breaking it isn't, we don't, so the, the question that was brought to me last week was, the, um, the guy who asked it isn't here, Nate. Um, he asked, in the Old Testament talks, in the Psalm 22, none of my bones will be broken. So like, how are we to think about the breaking of Jesus' body on the cross? Where, so his, his body wasn't broken on the cross. So why do we break the bread? Well, because, he, so what's happening to Jesus on the cross, his body not being broken is fulfilling Psalm 22. That's a totally different thing than what's happening in the Lord's Supper. In the Lord's Supper, we're breaking it not, not to fulfill some regulation, but because of just mere convenience and passing it around. And that's when Jesus does it as well. He breaks it, passes it, he gives it, the, he gives the bread to them, saying, this is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. The amount of ink that has been spilt on this verse could fill this gym. So first, some of, the, some of the other views that were circulating at the time of the Reformation, just in church history's practice. Well, we'll back up to the very beginning. So right after the institution of the Lord's Supper and when Jesus appears on the road to Emmaus, he has the Lord's Supper, some argue. And at the end of Luke, coming up in a few chapters, he actually has bread and he has the supper with, with the... Um, with uh, guys on the road to Emmaus. The church continues having this meal every time they're getting together and it falls into abuse. We see that in 1 Corinthians, but it's certainly being practiced. And they took great care in how they were practicing it and who they gave it to and what they said and what they did. Like great care was being done and all that. Uh, what happened as, as we get closer to the Reformation, actually, so the time of Aquinas, which certainly preceded the Reformation, uh, we get this 
like Aristotelian philosophy that comes in trying to, trying to describe the relationship between the bread and the body. So you've heard of transubstantiation. So these days you don't have to tell what trans means. Transubstance, substantiation, which is the, it continues to be the, the, the description of, of how the Roman Catholic Church describes what's happening in the Lord's Supper. And this, uh, I'll, I'll come back to Luther's critique, but it's this basic idea that this, this is a podium. That's the substance of the thing. It is a podium. It's got podiumness. Uh, but I can say, you know what? This is no longer a podium. This is a unicorn. So the, it, the substance is a unicorn, but the accidents, that is, the accidents are the things by which we describe it. So we're not going to describe the accidents of this unicorn with the way that you would describe it to your five-year-old with the horn and the whatever, the, whatever else. But this is, you know, it's light brown, it's hardwood, it's like all these, these so the, there's a distinction between what a thing is, the substance, and what the accidents are, like the, 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 the uh, descriptors of, of the thing. So in the Lord's Supper, Jesus takes the bread, and its accidents remain the same. Tastes like bread, smells like bread, looks like bread. Uh, and yet, the substance changes. It is the body of Christ, and no longer it ceases to be bread. It can't be two things at the same time. Um, the Lutheran response to that, Luther actually didn't, he's like, okay, fine, it's not ideal. You guys are bringing philosophy, so it's called anachronism. He's bringing, he's bringing philosophy that came thousand years later and forcing it into the mouth of Jesus at the institution. Jesus wasn't making this distinction. And we, so the, the Lutherans run to Paul in 1 Corinthians where he says, the, the bread that we break, is it not the body of Christ? He, so he, he, calls it, he calls it bread and body in the same verse. He refers to it as the same thing. The bread that we break, is it not the body of Christ? So we're like, the Lutheran move is to, to hold, the, hold the paradox, let the paradox stand. So the paradox being two seemingly contradictory ideas that we, that we hold to be simultaneously true, though they seem to be contradictory. So, so we say, well, yeah, it doesn't really make sense because it doesn't taste like blood. And yet it is the blood of Christ because he said, it's also still wine. And so we try to preposition our way out of this and say, well, it's in, with, and under. Sometimes pastors will call it, say, say that. It's helpful, I guess, in some way. Because you can look in it, you don't find body. You can look under it, there's no body. So it's a way to try to wrap our mind around this, this vessel by which the body of Christ is delivered. So that's, that's one, um, you could say abuse, but in the, even in that situation, they would still maintain, they maintain that the, the substance is actually there. The true, pr the bodily presence of Christ is there in the sacrament. The, it ceases to be bread, and our, that's our critique of the practice, that it's bringing a philosophical idea and ignores, it has to ignore Paul in that particular verse. 
But, so, but we're like, okay, we, Luther was cool to commune with Catholics on this point. There were other issues that were bigger for him to break communion over, but this, this wasn't necessarily one of them. Some of the other ones that came up after the, after the Protestant Reformation, you've got a few big voices, uh, specifically Zwingli, Karlstadt, which if you saw the Luther movie, uh, Karlstadt was like Luther's friend and at the, at the monastery and at the, or at the, at the university where he taught. And then after the Reformation, Karlstadt kind of went crazy thinking that God was talking to him directly and he's the one ripping baptismal fonts and altars out of churches and shattering stained glass windows. He was insisting that God doesn't work through, through means. God zaps me directly. Karlstadt's view was, so this is straight out of Luther. I got some great Luther quotes, but Luther's like, Karlstadt would say, would have us think that, that Jesus said, take, eat. So he holds up the bread and he says, take, eat. This is Hans's red coat. So here's the, here's the idea. He's holding the bread, but he's pointing to something else. He took the bread after supper, broke it, and said, this is Sue's rolly thing. <laughs> We're like, wait, what? that doesn't make any sense in the context. What? So he, they're trying to like, do some gymnastics to get Jesus off the hook because it doesn't make sense for this to be the body of Christ. Because uh, and, and, his actual, actual argument was, he took the bread, he held it up and said, this is my body. Like what? No, he's holding the bread, he's holding it up. He said, this is my body. So what are the disciples are thinking? What are you talking about here, Jesus, right? So Luther's, the classic Luther move is to, is to flee to the mouth of, and words of Jesus, even when they don't make sense. And that's what he's doing here. So, so this, which, what's this? It's not this, it's not that, it's this. So Karlstadt made a big deal about the this. Zwingli uh, came up later and, and his big thing was that is doesn't mean is. That's why Bill Clinton made it on the back of your handout today. <laughs> is means represents. Why? because it can't be. Look at it, right? It doesn't make any sense to my reason. So when we talk about our reason, we, there's, a, um, there's two ways of talking about our reason, because reason is actually good. It's God-given. He's given me our reason, strength, and all my senses. But there is a... Uh, you see... Curious Majesty, M-A-J or M-A-G? M-A... Magisterial versus a ministerial. This is the way the old theologians have always drawn this distinction. When we take, when we bring our reason and try to figure out the scriptures, it's either going to be in a magisterial use Majesty, think, when I say majesty, what do you think of immediately? King. So if a magisterial use of reason would be a, a, where my reason lords over the scriptures and my reason guides what it means. Ministerial is underneath. My reason is held captive to the word of God. So when things don't comport with my reason, 
I throw up my hands and say, yeah, it doesn't make sense, but that's what Jesus says. That's ministerial. But it doesn't say the reason is bad or that we shouldn't use it. It just has its limitations. It has its, it has its place. It doesn't make any more sense for the bread to be the body of Christ than it does for Jesus to be true God and true man 100% at the same time. It doesn't make any sense for, for me to be called a saint and a sinner at the same time, right? So we're holding paradoxes all the time. So, we, so we're, this, for Luther, that was the big thing, is ultimately is that it was Jesus's divinity that was ultimately at stake here. If you're, if you're gonna use your magisterial reason to try to redefine the scriptures, you're gonna get into a lot of trouble when it comes to whether or not Jesus is actually God. And that was, so the, the famous scene is Luther, he was debating with Zwingli, and Zwingli would just go on and on and on about all the reasons why he's wrong, why Luther's wrong. And then Luther wrote the Latin, uh, so if you translate this from, the Greek is a me, the Latin is est, is. He wrote est on the table. Some accounts say he carved it in the table. Some say it was chalk. The fact that there's actually two seemingly contradictory reports that are ultimately saying the same thing is actually evidence towards its truth, by the way that the actual event occurred. He, whether he carved it in the table, he wrote the word est and he put it under like his napkin. And so whenever they're debating, the way debates go, and so Zwingli would have his five minutes or whatever, and then Luther would just move his napkin and point at the table. And that was all he did. Just driving home the point that you can't, you, if Jesus meant signifies, then why did he say is? When there are words for signify, see? So, uh, which is given, so then we'll move off of is, this is my, oh, the other one is Echolampadius was a guy, he doesn't get as much attention in history, but his big thing that uh, this, this is, is means a figure of my body. So this bread in some way is a figure of my body. Same basic idea as Zwingli. Uh, this is my body, which is given for you. This language of something being done on your behalf, for you, in your place. That's the Passover sacrificial idea. The lambs are being slain for you, in, in your place, in your stead. Instead of you receiving the punishment that your sins deserve, this, the sacrificial lamb or the, whatever the sacrifice was. And so Jesus is fulfilling here all the sacrificial all the sacrifice of the Old Testament in this key words for you. Luther loves these words. Lutherans in history have loved these words. It's the giftedness of the sacrament, that it's not just his body, but it's actually meant to be delivered to his people. It is a gift for you. It's to be received. Do this. So we, it's, we have the clear command. You have to do it but it's actually a gift. So it's, it's, it holds the command. If you, if you want Jesus as a lawgiver, fine. You got a command, do this. But it's actually, do this in remembrance of me. And as we hear from uh, Matthew and also 1 Corinthians, do this in remembrance of me. And he attaches specifically the forgiveness of sins. So like if you're telling me, hey, this, do this for the forgiveness of sins, I, that's not a command. It's like, you're, you're starving of hunger and, and there's a table here full of like Subway sandwiches. Maybe it's a bad example, I don't know. But you, you walk up and I say, eat this. You're not saying, well, I'm not taking your commands. 
You're going to eat the sandwich, right? That's the idea. Now, do this in remembrance of me. Now, this is interesting. The Calvinists talk about the Lord's Supper as a memorial meal. And there's a lot of, uh, again, a lot of ink spilt on this remembrance idea that it's purely a, we go through the exercises much in the same way that sometimes uh, churches, again, in the 80s, I, I reference the 80s because that's actually the beginning of my experience. So it could have happened before the 80s, I don't know. But churches in the 80s would like do foot washings on Monday, Thursday. You ever do that? Your church ever do that when you're nothing? I had the one weird church that does that. Uh, well, so like we would, the pastor would like have us come forward and he'd wash our feet. And it was all, it was, Jesus didn't say to do that. It's not a sacrament. It was some hokey thing that, that he tried in the 80s for whatever reason. Uh, but that's a memorial experience. And it's purely mem- remembering that this happened once before. But there's more going on in remembrance of Jesus. When, uh, to, to just kind of speed up through it, when Jesus, not Jesus, when, when Israel is in, is in bondage to, to uh, Egypt, do you remember like, so Genesis ends and Israel's like at the top of their game in Egypt. And then, the begin, then Exodus begins and it kind of fast forwards over the last like, I don't know, 100 years where what has happened is another Pharaoh comes who doesn't know Israel at all. And now all the Egyptians or all the Israelites are enslaved and they're treated like garbage and they're not able to worship their God and they're given no, like they don't even have identity as persons. I mean, just terrible situation. And they're praying to God for redemption, for, for help to be set free. And then, it, interestingly, the text says, and God remembered Israel. Which, which begs the question, did he forget? What was he doing? I thought these were your people. Like you said, these are my people. So what do you make of him remembering? What was he... I mean, just follow that through. It's fun. Like, what was he busy doing? So when it, the Hebrew concept of remembrance is not simply, for us, it's a, it's a purely academic exercise. We have something that happened before and we remember it. We look at a picture and we remember a situation. When the Hebrew, when, the Hebrew in God, when God talks about remembering something, it's acting towards it usually to show mercy. And it bounces up, you might, you'll find it all over the Old Testament actually, where God will say, and he remembered this thing. He remembered Israel. Again, what was he, did he forget? No, it's not that he forgot, it's that now he's acting toward them in mercy. So this is, this is a fun thing. When we say, of me. Do this in remembrance of me. I can say, this is the cup of me. Can I say that? What do I mean when I say that? It's my cup. See? And the Hebrew uses this language all the time of possession. So when Jesus says, do this in remembrance of me, it has the sense of both us remembering, because the fact is we do, we read it. And, and, and Paul says, whenever we, whenever we eat the bread and drink the cup, we proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. 
to proclaim his death is to actually reference what's come before. So that's this memorial that's occurring. But I, the significance here is that it's not simply this, this, it's not our academic remembrance of a historical event. It's not exclusively that, but it's actually him remembering us. But you've never heard that before. But this is a, because our, our use of the language is we do this and we remember him. And it, we, it is that. And that is, by the way, that is, sal, that is salvation giving because it is the cross that saves. But the Bible, the, the biblical language of this of me stuff, of God's, this is my remembrance. God acting towards us in salvation. So let them both stand at the same time. You don't have to, you don't have to buy it. That's just what it is. This is the way the, the, way the, the language is written. So it, uh, interpretations go both, way, both, both ways. It's irrelevant, though, because the, the, the reason why I bring it up even is that when, when those who hold for it's only a memorial meal, the Lord's Supper is simply a, that it's not the true body and blood of Jesus. It's only, a, it's only an intellectual exercise for us to remember what's come before. Well, okay, you, you can try to cling to this verse if you want, but you still got to deal with is. You see? It doesn't get you off the hook. So, you, so that's, and this, uh, this has been written at, at length. I mean, Luther, these are, the, these are the debates that you were having, but they, that he was having, but they continue to this day on what does it mean by a memorial meal. Now, then he goes on with the blood. Likewise, the cup, after they had eaten, saying this cup is poured out for you, again, this for you, is the new covenant in my blood. So the covenant is, so same word for testament, last will and testament, which by the way, our Bible has an Old Testament and a New Testament. We think of the New Testament means everything that comes after the Old Testament, but it's really, this is the only place where the New Testament uses the words New Testament. It's talking about the supper. And the new, obviously the second half of the Bible talks about the Lord's Supper, but that's, that's what's going on there. But what happens, uh, unless you're the prodigal son, where you try to get dad's, you try to get your share of the last will and testament before dad dies, usually you don't get what's in the testament until what? Until the person dies. And then what, whatever's left to you in the will goes to you, see? So this is a, Jesus binding his, in, this, in, the, in this gracious binding relationship, this new covenant that he's putting together for us is, I'm gonna die and salvation is given to you. And the, the covenant itself is seen in, this, in the blood. This cup is the blood. Matthew, again, the other, gospel, the other gospel writers go at this, different words in different places. And what Paul does in 1 Corinthians is he's got kind of the, brings it all together. And then our practice of the Lord's Supper, it mostly leans heavily on Paul, but it, it brings all the pieces together at the words of institution. So what the pastor says at the words of institution are brought to our word are, are the are the gospel words of Jesus from all the gospels and Paul and first Corinthians uh, but behold the hand of him who betrays me is with me at the table so Jesus communes who Judas, Judas. So think about that and the implications for the Lord's Supper is it only the sinless 
who receive the Lord's Supper? I've actually engaged, I've encountered this on more than one occasion as a pastor where someone will, will exclude themselves from the Lord's Supper out of, out of piety, well-meaning piety, because they feel too sinful. That's like saying, my cancer is too bad to go get the chemo. Right? The heart attack is too bad for the paddle things. And no, like this is the solution to the sin. Right? The sin doesn't disqualify you. It actually qualifies you all the more. So for Judas here, though, it's interesting because Jesus, unlike you and me, Jesus knows his heart. When it comes to our practice of closed communion, I'm, I'm out of time already. Um, so people often say, well, pastor, you don't know their heart. And that's exactly why we read this statement at every service annoyingly. It does two things. It brainwashes you what we actually believe about the sacrament because we do it liturgically. We've been doing it for like seven years now. So by now it's probably in your, you say, well, you commune or a place where you believe what they teach. That's the idea. Uh, but that's only part of it. The other part of it is I, even if, I can walk up to somebody, a visitor, and say, hey, do you believe what we teach? And they can say to me, they can be practicing Buddhist. And they can say to my face, what? Yes, and I don't know their heart. So what I'm telling you, we, the reason why we read the statement before communion is we're telling you that your feet are your confession. When you walk up here, this is what you're saying. You can be lying to my face. In fact, if you don't believe what we teach, you are lying to my face. But instead of doing it with your mouth, you're doing it with your feet. And that's how Jesus is here too. So Judas has only given this confession with his mouth of who Jesus is. Jesus knows better, but he doesn't call him on it. He lets him commune. Now the questions, the questions then come up, and these are, we'll pick this up next week. These are the key questions regarding practice of the Lord's Supper. Is it the body and blood of Jesus if you don't believe it's the body and blood of Jesus? When does it become the body and blood of Jesus? When does it stop being the body and blood of Jesus? Those are all practical implications about the Lord's Supper. So, um, man, I, I, I actually prepared more of the next section because I thought we'd blow right through this, and I, I didn't. So we'll, we'll pick up with the Lord's Supper. Any, any quick questions when I get to the service here? I know I, I covered a lot. And, and, and so I tell you what, if you have questions, I know you have questions on the Lord's Supper about whether it's our practice or other people's practices or whatever. If you want to shoot me an email or just drop me a line sometime this week so I can help prepare for answering more questions for next week. But it's a great opportunity to talk about the Lord's Supper and any questions we might have. So look forward to that. The Lord be with you.